0: I hope that you have had a happy Christmas, and that you've been able to take time to celebrate the joyful truth that in Christ, the power of all that is dark and evil in the world has been defeated. Has been defeated. The birth of Christ marked the beginning of the death of death, but it is as though all that is ugly in the world refuses to accept defeat until the bitter end. There is still real pain that many live through. Several months ago, the Brisbane Courier-Mail published an exposé of children who had been left in terrible states of neglect. There's indeed real pain, and there's also real evil. Around the same time that I was reading about those events in Brisbane, I read about a young man from Cuyahoga, about 50 kilometers uh, inland from Byron Bay. He grew up in an abusive home. He lived through still more abuse from the gang of bullies at school. He was physically small. And his father, and the bullies, reminded him of this. He had no idea how to stand up and be a man. Something he desperately wanted. Until one day he didn't Oh this was nice it <laughs> just pulled that no, up. You're, yeah. up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you're just too strong as <laughs> like, um, you explanation. Know, sorry. He had no idea how to stand up and be a man. Something he desperately wanted. Until one day, he came across an unexpected solution in a poem at school. He read read the poem by Rudyard Kipling, If. It's the one that begins, If you can keep your head while all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. And he goes on to list the traits of someone who is both strong and kind. Someone who's cool-headed and still passionately committed to doing what is right. It describes a man who had been hated, but who didn't hate in return. And when he read the poem, the young man knew he had his guide for how to be a man. Years later, he discovered and committed his life to the man who was Kipling's inspiration for the poem, the person of Jesus. In coming to Christ, he experienced Christ's conquest over the evil that had scarred his life. Though his past wounds had left a mark, he was no longer defined by his old hurts. Stanley Dale went on to serve in the Australian Army in World War II. And while stationed in Papua and New Guinea, uh, he met people he met people who had never encountered the gospel of Christ. He made it his life's mission to share God's love and extend. Pardon me. He made his mission to share God's love and extend God's kingdom to these remote mountains where tribes of people were still steeped in old superstitions involving human sacrifice, even child sacrifice, and cannibalism. After learning the language and training some disciples among the neighboring tribes, he ultimately passed on into the mountains of the interior, where he was later killed by innumerable arrows from the Yali tribesmen whom he was trying to reach with the gospel. As I did research into the book of Revelation, I was surprised at how closely Stanley Dale's life mirrored one of the key themes in the, in the final book of the Bible. I'm going to focus on one key theme, our witness to God's truth, which I believe may be central to the theme of the book. May be the central theme of the book. I knew that didn't sound quite as strong as I meant to. It's going to be like in 10th grade biology, where you have to dissect a frog. And you have to find, say, the heart in its aorta or something. And you have to examine some key aspect of the frog, but not uh, but leave the rest undisturbed. We're going to try to do that with the book of Revelation. We're going to trace the key theme, but leave the, leave the rest undisturbed for us to examine perhaps on another day. In other words, I'm going to leave a lot of I'm going to leave out a lot of stuff, but I'm going to try and make sure that the part that we do talk about is examined in a way that doesn't do damage to the rest of the text which we just won't have time to get to. I just want to make sure Graham wasn't the only one who could do a biology metaphor about dissection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in- biology. Um. So, just to orient ourselves to the book, here's a really quick overview. John, inspired by Jesus, sends seven letters to seven churches. John then had a vision in which he saw the throne room of heaven, and a scroll is in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. The scroll was sealed with seven seals, which only the Lamb of God was worthy to open. The seals brought destruction on the earth. After the last seal was opened, seven angels sounded seven trumpets. Each of the trumpets introduced even more destruction on the earth. Finally, there are seven balls of wrath poured out on the earth. And these are the most destructive. Essentially the end of Earth history, the end of history, of the history of the earth. Essentially, the history of the earth comes to an end after the seven goals of wrath. Revelation discusses the ultimate end of the world, so it's not surprising that many people read into it a detailed map of the future, uh, a map of the future events. It. But it's worth bearing in mind that John expected his readers to be able to directly apply the message to their lives, as Revelation 1:3 says. Blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and who keep what is written in it because the, end, because the time is near. John expected the first century Christians to be able to keep what is written in it. So whatever we may expect that the book says about the future, God inspired John to write a book with a message that can be lived out in our own day. And it can be lived out in our day. In, sorry, in his own day. And it can be lived out in our day as well. One other key thing to note, the book is an apocalypse, which is a style of writing that was well-known to Jews in the first century. In this style of writing, one image is used to represent something else. Some of the imagery is a little unclear, but some of it is obvious. Uh, Sorry, but some some of it is obvious, like when it talks about a lamb standing as though it had been slain. It's definitely talking about Jesus, who died for our sins. The scope of Revelation is as broad as possible. It gives us a cosmic picture of the destruction of evil. Reading the book of Revelation gives you a similar feeling to the sense you get when you study astronomy. You get an overwhelming sense of your own smallness in light of the big picture. I'm going to give a little bit more detailed view of some of the main parts of the book, and we'll listen for John's message. John's message. How does he intend for us to keep what is written in it? Revelation starts, as we said, with the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, or present day Turkey. Well, there we go. The letters warn various churches of the dangers that they face, and they also offer encouragement. Then John has a vision. He remains in a visionary state for the rest of the book. He sees God. He sees the throne room of God, and he sees a scroll sealed with seven seals. A mighty angel calls out, Who is worthy to open the scroll? John weeps, because no one is found who is worthy to open the seven seals, until he hears a voice saying, The Lion of the tribe of Judah is able to open it. But when he looks, he sees that not a lion, but a lamb, standing as though it had been slain, is on the throne. These are two different images of Jesus. Jesus is the Lion, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the promised Messiah from the line of David. But Jesus is also the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The contents of the scroll that are about to be unveiled are so dramatic, so powerful, that the mere opening of the seven seals, which hold the scroll shut, causes some sort of cataclysm on planet Earth. The Lamb opens the first four seals. As each one is open, a horseman arrives, bringing with him some terrible event that affects a fourth of the world's population. The first of the four horsemen of the apocalypse is is a military champion who conquers much of the Earth. The next brings conflict to the Earth. The third brings famine, and the fourth, death. Of course, all this talk about conflict and that sort of drama is completely unimaginable in our modern, sophisticated age. and the whole idea that the fruits of conflicts are famine, starvation, and death, also a totally outdated notion from the first century. Something quite different happens when the fifth seal is opened. John sees all those who have been killed for the sake of testifying of Christ. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Here we meet the martyrs of Jesus, people who had died for their faith, and we see that there will be more to join them. Then we come to the sixth seal. So here's where we are so far. Okay, so there's the Um The first seal, conquest. The second seal. So after the first seal is opened, there's conquest. The second seal there's strife and scarcity and death. Then we see the suffering of God's witnesses in the fifth seal. And in the sixth seal we see the final cataclysm. When the sixth seal is opened, an enormous earthquake takes place on Earth. The Earth, the sun goes dark. The moon becomes like blood, and the stars of the sky fall to the fall to Earth like ripe figs when a tree is shaking. Obviously, this is apocalyptic imagery. Kings and servants alike crawl into caves among mountain rocks, like Osama bin Laden going into hiding or something. They cry out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the one from the face of the Him who seated on the throne and from the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So that's the end of chapter six. And then, as if in answer, the next verse, being in chapter seven, where we read, we hear that. Uh, John hears that 144,000 are sealed with the name of God on their foreheads. There's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. This is just like the kind of military census that ancient Israel used to take before battle. And the whole picture of an army going off to battle is just what would have been expected for the promised Davidic Messiah conquering the nations of Israel. Just what the Jewish people have been hoping for all along. But then... Remember, he hears, there's 144,000. But then what he sees is a huge multitude of people, too many to number, who are called out from the earth. So it's just like what happened uh, earlier when Jesus was described. John here's one thing, something that has to do with the traditional Jewish. John hears one thing, something that has to do with the traditional Jewish expectations of the Messiah and he sees something else about the Messiah, or in this case, the Messiah's people, that is unexpected. Both the 144,000 and the multitude that was too large to count are pictures of the same thing, people who have been redeemed by God. So here we see that the people who belong to God's anointed are much larger than the number of people that was expected, it includes Jews as expected, but it also includes a much larger number. Then we see something unexpected about this unexpected multitude, their robes are dipped in the blood of the Lamb and made white. They come praising God. This is an image of redemption, as you may suspect, but it is also an image of martyrdom. In the next chapter, in chapter 12 verse 11, this exact phrase, dipped their robes in the blood of the Lamb, is definitely used to describe martyrdom, not just forgiveness of sin. It's like John is saying they died in the same way. They died in the name of Jesus and in the same manner as Jesus. They were also killed for proclaiming the truth. We put the two images together. We've got the Messiah's army, and we've got uh so this be, we've got the Messiah's army and we've got um, the imagery of martyrdom. And we see that this is an army of martyrs. They go out to conquer, but the conquering just as Christ himself conquered. They bear witness to God's truth, even at the cost of their own lives. Revelation presents two stages in the work of Christ. In the first stage, Jesus conquers through his own witness to the truth and his own death. In the second stage, Jesus' followers go out and conquer as he did. For the record, not everyone who follows Christ must necessarily become a martyr, but John is telling us that the conviction to bear honest and faithful witness to Christ regardless of the consequences, even death, must be present in the heart of Christ's followers. On this point, I failed in the past. I was in a country where Christianity is illegal. And at one point, I remember asking myself if I would be willing to die for the gospel. Of course, growing up, I was all, yeah, of course, I'll talk to the gospel, you bet. Too right. But then when I was actually in the country, it was time to think pragmatically. Uh, So I reasoned that, well, on your first offense of sharing the gospel in this country... You're only put in prison. So I could at least commit to that. A reason that I could uh, I could put off whether I actually wanted to die or for another day, it was as though I were putting off the ultimate decision, and this is less than what Christ calls us to do. I never opened my mouth. The whole matter of deciding took place in my heart, or even thinking about it. It all took place in my heart. But I can remember thinking about this and knowing, even then, before the imagery <coughs> from Revelation was explained to me, that I was not really committing to God, my Redeemer, all that he has owed. Finally, the seventh seal is opened. And there is silence for about half an hour, after which the seven angels are given seven trumpets. An angel comes and stands before the altar of God and offers a massive amount of incense from a golden censer. The smoke of the incense mixes together with the prayers of God's people as the prayers ascend to God. The angel fills the censer with fire from the altar and dumps it on the earth. After that, the seven angels blow their trumpets in succession, and all heaven breaks loose. Each trumpet blast introduces some new plague or judgment, often very similar to the plagues that God brought when his people, the God, it's often similar to the plagues from when God brought the people out of his people out of Egypt. The plagues from the seven seals, you will remember, destroyed a quarter of all humanity. The plagues from the seven trumpets are even more powerful. They, disturb, they destroy one-third of all humanity. But at the end comes an important verse, 920. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, did not repent of the works of their hands, or stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, which cannot see, hear, or talk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. So they've just been through an enormous amount of suffering. These people have just been through an incredible amount of suffering as a consequence of their sin, and still do not repent. At this point, an angel comes to deliver, comes and delivers the scroll to John and instructs him to eat it. This is a reference to the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both eight scrolls at different points. It's gotta be an image of John internalizing the message. John is, of course, a leader of the church. The picture of John consuming the message mm-hmm. is a picture of the church being filled with the truth of God. And it prepares us for the strange vision that John is about to relate. What follows is a surprising story. A story of two witnesses who are called olive trees or lampstands. You may remember that, you may remember, that a lampstand is an image uh, for a church. Uh, we mention this in the seven, in the seven letters to the seven churches. And of course, a tree is something that is alive and which gives life to others, just as a church should be. We're told that if anyone tries to hurt the witnesses, fire comes forth from their mouths and consumes them. I think this is a reference to the prophet Jeremiah, who had the word of God shut up in his bones like fire. The two witnesses are like the culmination of all the Old Testament prophets. They have the power of by God's grace, to shut the sky so that no rain may fall, as happened in the days of Elijah. They have the power to turn water to blood and strike the earth with plagues, as happened with Moses. It reminds me of when Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets, and yet, not know, from memory, so I'm going to get in trouble. And the least of these of the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he because they have the message, the powerful message of the word of God in them. But then we're told something strange. When they finish their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit and will make war on them and conquer them. Their bones are left in the street, an utter disgrace in the ancient world, and people begin to celebrate their deaths by giving gifts to one another. Nothing can be more obvious than the fact that these witnesses have failed. Then comes the unexpected. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and this is reading from the text here, and a great, great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up, here. And they, went up in a, in, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heavens. So, after the sixth seal was opened, an earthquake struck the struck the earth. That the <coughs> kings and slaves hid and asked, "Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb?" The answer was that those who had been redeemed by the Lamb were able to stand before the Lamb. After the sixth trumpet sounded, <coughs> another earthquake hit. And people still refused to repent. They hated the witnesses. They hated the com- they hated the confrontation with the truth which kept them from living life on their own terms, according to their own idolatry. The world delighted when the witnesses were killed by the beasts from the bottomless pit. He was someone who wouldn't stand in their way or confront them over their sin. He encouraged it, and they were just fine with it. And yet, for all the animosity of the world, God did not forsake his witnesses. They were called up to be with him in their deaths, and ultimate vindica- and in their deaths and the ultimate vindication they won the victory for God, they won the victory that God had for them. They lived like Christ, and they died like Christ, and they conquered by their faithful witness. Do you remember Stanley Dale, the missionary who died under a hail of innumerable arrows that had been launched by fearful, spiteful cannibals? He and his friend, another missionary, died that day on the outskirts of a remote tribal land in New Guinea. Their bodies were so densely covered with arrows that you could not see the flesh of their skin. What an obvious failure. He never even got to interact with the people he was attempting to reach. Another of missionaries tried to reach the same area and it crashed. Only their four-year-old survived. What an obvious waste. I should mention, however, that the little boy crawled out, their little boy crawled out of the wreckage of the plane and happened to walk into a hut of a man who was very sympathetic and eager to know all about the god that the parents of the boy had come to proclaim. Apparently, the locals believed that the second group of witnesses was some sort of divine sign. Today, if you go to that village, there is no more cannibals. There is no more fear of the local gods, of the river or the mountains, who demanded human sacrifice, even child sacrifice, if the rules were broken. Where there was mourning, there is now joy and praise. (coughs) There is a little valley in New Guinea that now knows and lives out the truth of Psalm 30, 11. You turned my mourning into dancing. What a precious gift those missionaries offered the tribesmen when they gave their lives to share the gospel. I immediately think of Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. As I read about the missionaries who gave their lives to bring life to this little village in New Guinea, and as I read about the army of martyrs in Revelation who conquer by imitating Christ in life and death, I thought of the words of the ancient Christian, Tertullian, who was born about 50 years after the death of the Apostle John. Tertullian wrote that the blood of the martyrs watered the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs watered the seed of the church. Mm. We're turning the page to begin a new calendar year. Let us renew our commitment to live lives abandoned to the care of our God who conquers darkness through the sacrifice of Christ and his followers. Let us commit ourselves to living lives that are wholly devoted our good God, and to blessing a world that needs his love and his care, and to whom we can be vehicles of mercy of kindness and the goodness of God.